to the text that we have before us today. It says, I do not ask the way to see the way my feet will have to tread, but only that my soul may feed along, uh, upon the living bread. Those are, those are difficult words for those of us who are control freaks. And most of us in this room, if you don't know this about yourself already, um, I'm accusing you of being a control freak. And you probably already know that about yourself. I know that that's true about me. That we spend a lot of our time and a lot of our energy seeking to secure and control our lives. That we, we love to know what is going to happen next. And we love to arrange our lives in such a way that we hope that they will be somewhat predictable, right? Uh, that maybe we can do enough things that we know what this year will be like. That we make um, resolutions or we do certain things that we say, if I... If I, if I make these goals and, I, and, I, and I'm diligent enough, then maybe my life will be predictable. And yet, that is not the Christian life at all. Because the Christian life says, you have no idea where you're going to go. Um, you have no idea where God is going to lead you. And we look at the Old Testament, we see that over and over, that God is telling people to pick up, take your family, and move. And go where I'll lead you. That He's, he's leading people through wilderness with um, clouds and fire, pillars. They don't know where they're going. And yet he's saying, I will feed you. I'll send bread from heaven. And you can trust me. And so this morning, that's really what this passage is about. It's about trust. It's about relinquishing control. It's about understanding that he is one who is one we can trust. And that we can, we can follow wherever he will lead us. Um, but that is a hard thing for us. It's a hard thing for us to consider. We're going to look at John 6 this morning. I apologize on the outset for being a little bit nasal. I'm going to be sniffing throughout this, so forgive me. Um, John chapter 6 this morning. Let me set this up a little bit before I read it because I'm jumping in towards the end of this chapter. And this is, a, this is just an astounding section of Scripture, I think, because what happens at the beginning of this, of this chapter in John chapter 6 is that this group of people are following Jesus, and John tells us that they're following him because Jesus has been going around and he's been healing people. And we know this, that he's been healing, and people are astounded by this, and they're curious about this. And so they're following after Jesus, and he's teaching, and he's healing, and this great mob has really accumulated. And what happens next is usually one of the stories that we reserve almost for, like, when the children leave and they go over there, they have a story that maybe is something like this about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. And you may, you know, think about, you know, if you grew up in the church, Sunday school class, we had stories like that. And as we get older, we're less amazed by them because we've heard them so many times. But think about this for a minute, that this group of 5,000 people, probably more than that, because it actually says that there were 5,000 men, and we know that at least a boy was there because he had some food. And so it's probably the men who were actually counted, and there was probably more than that. And you think about in this room right now, um, I have no idea. I'm not a good estimate of, of numbers, but, you know, maybe a couple hundred people. A couple hundred people. Think about 5,000, maybe upwards of seven, 8,000 people were following Jesus. And the disciples who are closest to Jesus, I imagine, feel fairly significant at this point. We're the ones closest to Jesus. There's all of these people that are interested in him. But then there's, this point occurs when they realize they've gotten kind of far away and it's time to eat and this crowd is there. And so Philip turns to Jesus and Jesus says, you know, what are we going to feed them? 
And it says that Jesus asked this question because he was testing them. Now, that seems a little bit unfair of Jesus, right? Um, there's maybe 7,000 people gathered in front of you, and, and Jesus turns to Philip and says, well, what are we going to feed them? And he responds, he said, even 200 denarii would not feed this crowd, which was about two-thirds of a year's labor. And there's a, that's a significant amount of money could not even feed this entire crowd. And there's that sense, there's this impending sort of um, sense that this crowd could turn on them at any moment. It's a lot of people. And if you do something that makes this crowd mad or if you do not provide for them, there's a sense in which they're kind of saying, let's get them out of here before they all get hungry and they get mad. And instead, well, Andrew says, well, there's this boy here who has five loaves and he has two fish. And he says, well, it's here, but I mean, this is all we've got, five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, have them sit down. Okay. It says it was grassy and they all sat down in the grass and they all ate until they were full. And there was 12 baskets that were left over. That Jesus literally satisfied the hunger of this huge crowd that was following him. And that's the context with which we walk into this passage because what happens next happens the next day as this crowd really becomes one who has gone to search for him again. John chapter 6, starting in verse 48. It's printed there in your bulletin for you to follow along. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to, say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one comes to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
And after this, many of the disciples, they turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. This is God's Word. Let me pray and ask His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as the one who has the words of eternal life. Father, we confess that we have turned to many other things. We have turned to many other places. We have confessed it to you this morning. You have assured us of your forgiveness for us. And so, Father, as we come to your word, I pray that we would feed upon it, we would feast upon it, and that you would increase our faith this morning through the working of your spirit. We ask this in his name. Amen. Being in a, a campus minister and college ministry is what I do. And one of the things, one of the great joys, sometimes one of the curses of this job is doing a, a good amount of premarital counseling. And some of you who are married, you've been through premarital counseling. Some of you may be going through premarital counseling now. And one of the, um, one of the interesting things I think about premarital counseling is that we, we end up talking a lot about expectations, right? Uh, that people go into marriage and they go with all of these expectations of what it's going to be like. And one of the frustrations I have with premarital counseling is that you can never really fully um, answer all of those expectations because people have so many of them, and most of them are even unspoken or maybe subconscious, that they really won't discover them until they get married. And so, um, you know, a lot of the guys that I talk to just, you know, picture marriage as a sort of uh, prolonged act of, of sex punctuated with, like, eating and naps occasionally, Right. And they have to be awoken from that dream and see that that's a false expectation. Um, you know, maybe the, some of the girls I've talked to just have just pictures of maybe what dinner time is going to look like. And that was maybe built around what dinner time at their house looked like. And you enter into this relationship and you have these expectations that sometimes are unmet and they become a source of frustration. One of the... This is just to make myself look like a complete dork for a minute, which is not hard to do, but one of the things that, one of the expectations I had when we got married, uh, which was kind of hilarious, is that I just thought, somewhere in the back of my head, I had this picture of us, um, of me reading stories uh, to Rosie out loud. I know this sounds ridiculous, right? And um, I don't know where, I, I, you know, couples I've heard do that, maybe they read out loud to one another, and I didn't think it was like this is going to be something we did like every night or anything, but you know, maybe occasionally we would read out loud to one another. And so on our honeymoon, um, I brought a copy of, and Brian Habig would be proud of me, of Flannery O'Connor's short stories. And maybe the third night of our honeymoon, I, I said, you know, you care if I read a story to you? And she looks at me sort of awkwardly, and, and I read, and about halfway through she falls asleep, and at the end she wakes up. She says, you know, I really don't like being read out loud to which is perfectly understandable because I don't really like being read out loud to either. I just like to read out loud. And so, you know, right away I realized there's a lot of expectations I have of this other person that really are no, in no way, you know, founded in anything. And um, what we find here in this passage is that 
Jesus always has this group of people that are following after him, that have um, associated themselves with him, who are fascinated with him to some degree, and who are following after him. And Jesus is always very concerned about why they are following after him. Why are these people here? Why are they here? Why, they, why have they gathered around me? What expectations do they have of me? And there's a sense in which Jesus is concerned that the people following him are following him completely for the wrong reasons. That they are not there because of what he has come to give them. That they are not there because he has come to give them life. That they are there for something entirely different. And this is something that disturbs Jesus. In this passage, what we see is that Jesus really does this sort of cleansing of the crowd. That, that Jesus, as a leader of a movement at this point, is an utter failure, right? Because what Jesus does is he has amassed a crowd of people. And what he does at the end is he basically sends all of them away disappointed. Because all of them had come to him looking for something that he was not necessarily offering. All of them had false expectations of who he was and what he could give them. And when Jesus begins to talk about what it really means to be connected to him, everyone gets, gets disgruntled and leaves. What Jesus is doing is he's separating the true disciples from the false disciples. And this morning, as we go through this, I want us to ask just this question of what are, what are your expectations of Jesus? I mean, as you come into this place this morning, as you come maybe every week, as you sit here and, and you worship and you listen to his word and maybe you participate in those things throughout the week, what do you expect from him? And all of us have a complex web, I'm sure, of expectations that we have of Jesus um, some of them are things that we expect of him, and we expect them um, to the point where we have just taken them for granted. We expect him to give us a house and shelter. We expect him to, to give us friends. We expect him to give us food. And we, ex- we just expect those things to flow so frequently. And those are just small examples. What are the things, what are the ex- expectations that we have put upon Jesus. Maybe one of the ways to examine that is to just say, how, how do you pray? Or maybe, do you pray? Is your life marked with maybe prayerlessness? Um, maybe you're a Christian and you're still not praying and you're just expecting certain things from him. Um, maybe all of your prayers are just, it's, it's, good, it's good to go pray desperately to Jesus, but maybe all of your prayers are simply trying to get Jesus to conform to the life that you want. Please help me to get this job because what I really think I need my life to look like looks like this, and in order for that to happen, I have to have this job. Jesus, please help me to do that. We see it with football players all the time. I saw it with one yesterday. It's sort of like, God, help me win this game. I don't know. Maybe he did, but it's, you're using God in a certain sense to sort of magnify your own plan in life. And the question is this, what happens if Jesus doesn't meet any of those expectations that you have of him? 
What if at every turn, Jesus says no to the things that you are most frequently looking to Him to give to you? And the question is, will Jesus still be what you're looking for? Will Jesus still be worth hanging around? (laughs) After Jesus feeds these 5,000 people, many of them go looking for him the next day. And he's gotten in a boat and he has left and they said they see his boat is gone and they get in a boat after him and they go find him in Capernaum. They go looking for Jesus. And they're ready. What, What they're ready for is they're ready for breakfast. This is a man who creates food with his bare hands. Let's go find him because I'm hungry again, right? And so they all go looking after Jesus, and Jesus confronts them, and he basically says to them, you're not following me because you have seen the signs that I performed, and you believe in me. You are following me because you ate and your bellies were full. And basically, you're following me because I I made you satisfied and comfortable temporally, and you want that again. So the people respond, and they say, this is kind of clever. Um, They say to him, well, you know, God gave bread from heaven to our fathers in the wilderness. He made it fall down from heaven. And so this is not such a, you know, maybe an unreasonable Request: If you were a prophet sent from God and you did this miracle yesterday and we know that God has provided food for us in the past, um, maybe as we come to you and ask for it again, it'll happen again. This is an, an, not an unreasonable request. And in a sense, it's not. But what Jesus says next is astounding. Because they draw the connection for him. Because they draw the connection between God providing bread from heaven and Jesus says to them, I am the bread. I am the bread. I am he who comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall no longer hunger or thirst ever again. In other words, if you, if you see what I'm actually offering you, your last question in life is going to be about food, is what he's saying. Your last question in life is going to be like, I'm hungry, and where's the next meal? He's saying, if you, if you actually, you're completely missing the point. I am offering you life. I am offering you abundance. I am offering you forgiveness. I am offering you acceptance. I am offering you a relationship. I am trying to give you life, and all you can think about is breakfast. He turns up the heat a little bit, and he just says, You're following me because you think I can give you bread, but I am bread. I am bread. And for you to follow after me, to truly know me, I have to become your sustenance. I have to be the thing that um, is your meat and your drink. And what Jesus is really saying to them is that you are asking for far too little. 
And don't we do this all the time? Don't, I am so guilty of asking for far too little. <laughs> that, that we are, our minds are so clouded by tomorrow and our minds are so clouded by what is happening next week and our minds are so clouded by this, just the simple things of life that we're so afraid of that we're forgetting to ask for the biggest things, the bigger things. And Jesus is saying the rumbling of your belly is, is, is making you overlook something that's, such, that's so much better. He says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And obviously this is something that trips them up because this is kind of a freaky statement that Jesus says. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And Jesus says it very intentionally, obviously, but he says it because it, it is a picture of what is happening. Instead of that food simply satisfying you and you go in your way, he says the thing that you feed upon from now on, the thing that satisfies you, the thing that is deep inside of your gut is going to be me. So that even if that bread is taken away, you are sustained. And his disciples, they say, you know, whoa, this is the first we've heard of this, right? <laughs> He's starting to talk about eating him. And um, we've left our jobs and families uh, to follow this man. And this sounds a little bit crazy and say, this is a hard thing to swallow. This is, this is hard. This is hard for us to understand. And Jesus comes right back at them. And he comes right back at, at them and, and says, do you not understand this? And he says, it is, what if you were to see me ascending back into heaven, which they will in just a little while. And he says, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. And what he's saying to them really is that you are still ones who are, who are thinking in a fleshly way. You're still ones who are trusting in yourself. And those who are thinking in a spiritual way, he says, will understand what he is talking about. And so after he says these things, many of them just simply get up and leave. Many just simply get up and they never come back. Now, think about this in terms of Jesus for a minute. I mean, he's, he has amassed this crowd and there are people following him. And he's intentionally saying these things to disrupt the crowd. To see, what are you there for? Why are you here? I mean, preachers never do this. We don't want anybody to leave, right? Don't say anything that's going to make people leave, right? Jesus made people leave all the time because he wanted to go, why in the world are you sitting there? What are you doing? It's basically what he's saying. Why are you here? <laughs> and he's, he's insulting in a way because he's saying... Are you just playing a game or do you really want, do you want me? Do you want what I am offering? Are you still trusting in the flesh? Are you still just here because of something that you think I might give you? Do you think that I am like, that I'm just sort of job security for you? As long as you praise me, that I'll, I'll make sure you're okay. He says, or do you want me? Will you follow me even if I don't give you bread? Even if I make your life harder, 
even if I make you suffer? And it's easy for us to overlook those passages of Scripture and not want to talk about them because they are hard to look at. But Jesus continually, as he walks with his disciples, is telling them over and over again, you're going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. They're going to kill me. You're going to suffer too. And if we look at the life of Jesus and the people he came in contact with, basically everyone he came into contact with, he wrecked their lives. Have you ever noticed this? Mary, 13, 14-year-old girl, gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Her life was wrecked. It is, it's amazing that she was not killed for it, right? How do you explain that to other people? Everyone for the rest of your life looks at you like you're a crazy person. No one ever understood that, except for maybe a few The disciples, come and follow me. And in a sense, Jesus wrecked their plans for their life. He wrecked their plans. He took them on a path that ultimately led them to be martyrs. If you think I'm being morbid for a minute, we have to be shocked out of the sense that what Jesus is calling us to is somehow predictable to us. Or is somehow comfortable for us. He has come to give us eternal life. And he has called us to set out on a pilgrimage in this life in a way that we can say no to things that other people can't. Why? Because we are sustained by him. And you are like me. You have, you, we have grown up in a place of abundance, in a people of abundance. We are a people of abundance and saying no to anything is a really hard for us. And Jesus is saying, really, what is your meat and your drink? What is, the, what is it, what he's saying is, what is it really that is making you tick? What is the thing that you feed upon? What is the thing that you feast upon? What is the thing that gives you sustenance? What's the thing that keeps you going? Are you going to Jesus over and again, over and over again, and you're asking for a certain thing, you know, or, and he's continuing to give it to you, and so you are okay with him? Jesus, give me safety. He's kept me safe so far. We're okay. What if he takes it away? What if the safety net is gone? And those who are following Jesus because of their false expectations of what he will give them We'll always be exposed when things go bad. When the rubber meets the road and everything in life, Jesus seems to be taking away the things that maybe you most find valuable and secure in your life. Those who are trusting him simply for that, they will pick up and they will walk away. So many... Dealing with college students, so many come to college, especially at a place like Furman. Um, it's sort of expected as you come to a certain degree that you at least say you're a Christian. It's very cultural. It's very, it's, it's, you're not condemned for that in that place. Um, and yet you watch people as they come in and they say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I grew up in the church, blah, blah, blah. And then you watch throughout college where that doesn't 
there's, there's, there's no reason to believe that any of, that that's actually true in their life. They're giving, there's no fruit and there's no evidence of that. Because Jesus is not the thing that they're feeding on. And it probably is the case that he never was. And if you're wondering maybe this morning, if you're kind of going, well, Jesus, maybe as you're speaking, I'm thinking that Jesus is not really that important in my life. And it may be because you are feeding upon something else. You may be sort of using Jesus to get that. Or at least think you're using Jesus to get that. But it may be that your life is, is completely, you are being, you are feeding you were drinking something wholly other. And Jesus may be there in a cultural sense, in a societal sense, in a sense that makes us feel good. How do we know what our meat and our drink is? How do we know what that is? I mean, it's a question that we always have to be asking ourselves. We who, we, we're, as we're surrounded by so many things that that so easily seem to satisfy us. You and I as Christians, living right now in America, right now, we have to ask the question, what is our meat and our drink? My wife and I, Rosie, were driving home, getting ready to leave. We went and visited my family in Memphis last week for Christmas. And um, as we were packing up to leave, some of you who have younger children, you know this moment as you're beginning to gather the itty-bitty pieces of everything that has accumulated, that has been given to them over the last few days. You know this, do you know this feeling? Of beginning to go around and collect the toys and the minute little pieces of the toys that they have scattered about and um, begin to box them up and put them in the car and pack them. And I am not a happy packer at all. Like, never have been. Um, have repented of it, um, have asked Jesus to change me slowly. I think he is. But when I start packing that van, especially on the way home, and it's just like, oh. Because you think about, like, the 10-hour drive and then unpacking it all again. And so usually when we get in the car and we start to drive, it is just sort of like dead silence, tension, love my family, but still you've been with them for a while, you understand, it's just... Just driving, just get me home. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit moved in our 2002 Honda Odyssey that morning as we drove along, as we drove past rows and rows of tract housing, as we started to thinking, we just started thinking about our lives. And sometimes you've had those moments. And caused us to, to talk and to start to go, what? What are the things that we feed upon that we're feeding upon in this life that we're just totally blind to. That, that what are the things in our lives that we, com- we are just consuming, consuming, consuming because they just make us happy and we're never stopping to think, are these things that are clouding, are veiling our need for Jesus? Are these expectations that have built up in our lives that we need to repent of? And so we started just writing down and making a list of things. These are things we need to repent of. These are things that we find joy in. And so I'm not saying that like we find joy in this material world. I love this material world, and so did Jesus, so much so that he became material. 
I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not preaching Gnosticism. I'm saying that what, are there things in which we are trusting that we are so feeding upon that, that that's just, we don't think about ever? We just started making a list of those things and just going, I, I just never say no to any of these things for any reason whatsoever. In a sense, they distance me from Him. When I'm sad, I buy something. At the end of the night, I'll eat more. And I never stop to think why. These are things that we begin to feed upon without thinking about it. Instead of going to Jesus, instead of feeding upon Him, what is it, what is it your meat and your drink? What is the things in your life that you are valuing and you're placing a high priority on? What are the things that you value so much and you work hardest for and what if they were taken away? And what if Jesus took them? Could your life go on? Not long ago, I, I have a friend who is very um, driven and very hardworking. He's a great guy and just had done well for himself and had always, he was just kind of always the together guy and always on track and handling like 50 things at a time and I'm trying to handle one thing sort of clumsily. You look at this guy and it's just, you know, he's a machine. And he came to a point a while ago where he was about to lose all of it. And just circumstances has arose and God was about to just take it all, take that all away. And I called him and was talking to him about it and um, I was kind of surprised because I didn't know what to expect. And what he, what he said, he, was, he said, I have never been so relieved in my life. I have never been closer to Jesus. I have never felt more satisfied in Him. I do not care if I have to load trucks for the rest of my life. It doesn't matter. Jesus taking away these things is the best thing that ever happened to me. What is your meat and your drink? Jesus says, if you come after me, feed upon me. I I want to give you life. So why were all these people, this is a question I think is worth talking about for just a second. Why were all these people following him if they don't really want him? And and how, how do we see this still today? Because Jesus is concerned with this. He's always revealing that there are people following him that don't know him. They're feeding upon him, and it's a danger, and it's a risk. And so what are these false forms of discipleship that we see? And it may be that some people were just following him because it was just the thing to do. And these are people who maybe um, are just not thinking deeply about their lives at all. And there was a big crowd that was moving that way, and so they said, let's go. And they just walked with them to the next place. Um, because that's where the crowd had gathered, and when the crowd turned to leave, they just turned to leave with them. And they were just, they were there because it was expected of them. It was just what everyone else did. Now, is that applicable to us in this day and time and where we are culturally? Absolutely. Because there are many people who just still in our day and just expect that church is something that you do. 
And so they follow along and they go because that's what people say, or they go a few times a year, that's what people say. Are they feeding upon Jesus? Probably not. There are others who just were there because they, they were enjoying what they were seeing. Right? And, and John tells us this. He says they're gathered because they, they saw miracles performed. And these are people who just kind of like the show that is before them. And so they may come and they like worship or they like something about singing or they like something of the feeling that it gives or they like something of the community that is found there. And all of those things are wonderful. And all of those things are valued. But we can make an idol out of those. And we can begin to worship those over and above Jesus. And then others, I think, are following along just because they feel guilty. That they're there because, you know, we say, well, I guess I, I need to go to church. Or I need to be involved in a Bible study. Or I need to do this. And they have been, that has been placed upon them their entire life or maybe it's by, by their peers and they just say, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. And they are not feeding upon Jesus. There are many ways in which we can just follow along with the crowd, enjoy some of the experience, or maybe be motivated by guilt. And not know him. Earlier in this passage, they, people came to him and they said, well, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And this is, I love the way Jesus responds. <laughs> he says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And you see what's happening is they're coming after him and they're saying, But we, I mean, we've done all these things, we are the religious people. What must we do to be doing the works of God if we haven't already been doing them? And he says, it's about me. You have to believe in me. And it's such a relief. He's saying, I don't give a rip about all of those things if you don't believe in me, if all of your trust is not in me. Don't be coming to me with all of this and offering it to me. Come to me empty-handed and I will satisfy you, is what he's saying. This morning, why are you following him? The end of this section, Peter gives us a really different response. Everybody leaves and everybody walks away. And I think Peter gives us a response that is one that we have to pay attention to. Because literally thousands have left and Jesus' obvious next question is, do you want to go away as well? I mean, literally everyone is walking away. Do you want to go too? And Peter's answer is one of, of really just this trusting despair. It's not, overly, it's not overly optimistic in the sense that he's going, but life's going to be great if we stay with you, Jesus. We know this. It's, it's not full of super spiritualism, right? It's real. He says, where else can we go? Why? You have the words of eternal life, and we have seen it, and we believe it, that you are the Son of God. Where else 
can we go? I mean, as we enter into a new year, and I don't know if you're like me, but after Christmas, I start to get that feeling like I should be making my life better. Don't you? It's sort of everywhere. You're thinking about last year. You're thinking about what's coming. And you just start to have that feeling like, okay, let's do this right this time. We've got another clean slate. And, and the, the truth is we, we just don't know what the year will bring. And the truth is we don't even know what failures will be ours that God will use for his glory. And I think that the answer that he wants us to have and what needs to be on our lips is that there's, there's nowhere else for us to go except to you because you have the words of eternal life. You are bread and you are true drink. And those of us who, who feast upon you, we're not naively optimistic We're trusting. We have faith that whatever comes is because you love us and you will sustain us. I pray that God would give us that. I pray that he would give us that even now as we come to his table. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread that came down from heaven. We thank you that he is true food and true drink. And that those of us who eat and drink of him will never hunger or thirst again. Father, give us faith. Give us faith to believe that. Give us faith in the, as we face temptation at every turn that, that promises us so much, that promises us life around every corner and yet is death. Father, may we instead follow the one who went into the darkness into the darkness. We may, we, may we follow him into the hard places of life. And we may, may we bring light, the light that he is, into those places. And Father, we ask this to your praise and your glory. Amen.